time to get dosed. Welcome to Dosed, everybody. It's a Thursday, September 15th, 11 a.m. on the East Coast, 7 p.m. in the U.K., where our guest is calling from. Got a crazy one for you today. soundtrack of interstellar <laughs> like waiting for that hit um we're testing the uh copyright law on this calling yeah, show we'll, we'll see, see if, if this gets pulled see if the crawlers get this one um should be fine since it's not going up on soundcloud but man what a what a great movie um i'm actually curious to see what our guest thinks about that because <laughs> definitely some impossible oh well, maybe not maybe just improbable <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us early on this Thursday morning for those of us in the West Coast. And for those of us joining from other parts of the world, thank you as well for joining us. This is Abby Martin. Welcome to Dosed. So far on this show, we've learned some very trippy things, very tripped out stuff. Incredible plants and fungi to cults and philosophy, meditation. We could cover every single mysterious and mind-blowing fact about our realm here on Earth, and none of them would hold a candle to the truly incomprehensible realm beyond our atmosphere, the cosmic realm. It's the kind of stuff that makes your brain hurt when you try to think about it, and makes you feel smaller than microscopic, because in the grand scheme of things, we are. It's a subject we've been excited to do on Dosed since we started the show. So we're dedicating the next two episodes to the subject. In the next episode, we're interviewing an astrophysicist. But before that, I wanted to talk to a space enthusiast. And we have the perfect guest to do that today. For the last few weeks, Mike and I have been tripping out watching a YouTube channel called C. That's S-E-A going down some serious rabbit holes. I knew that we had to have the creator on because they're so chill, so fun, and so fucking mind-blowing. So without further ado, I'm very pleased to have on the show creator of that YouTube channel, Sam E. Anderson. Thanks so much for joining us on Dosed. Hi there. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Excited to be here. Excited to meet you too. We're gonna pump your audio up a little bit, Sam. You're slightly come muted. back, come back, come say, back. Say a hi again. Yeah, say it. Let's. Hi there. How's that? Any better? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Sam, of course, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate you, your work. Uh, SEA is just obviously your initials, right? Yep. Okay. It is. When I started, I was uh, when I started YouTube. I was doing it under a gamer tag, which was C nineteen ninety seven. But I got rid of the nineteen ninety seven. 
I love it. Is that when you were born? Yeah. <laughs> the classic initials plus. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's written on my play, my silver play button for 100,000 subs now. It says C, so there's no turning back. Now, I've thought about changing the name before, but we're too too far gone. You're way too far gone, man. You have way too many subs, way too many people into it. It would be too alarming if you transition. I think people just know. I think it's cool and it's memorable. C. Find C. them on YouTube. S-E-A. The C of the cosmos. Um, I, before we start and really dive into this, I mean, there's so much to talk about exactly. about how you started this. Like, we were talking a little bit about about how you began this endeavor, you know, going down the rabbit hole yourself and then translating that into these video creations. They're so well done, Sam. I mean, obviously heavily researched, well-written, engaging graphics and visuals, and the perfect music to relax and get overdosed to while you are tripping out on this stuff. I mean, just I know that you you said that you started off gaming, doing gaming videos. I guess talk about the transition into the space stuff, and just the creative process that you go into when you when you create one of these things. Yeah, well, I mean, I I did start gaming, and I was um, that was that was about seven years ago now. And about four years ago, I was trying to, I decided that I'd gone far enough with the gaming. So I wanted to branch out. And I did, I mulled a few topics. Uh, space was one of them. History was another. Geography was sort of an outside one. But ultimately, space was the best one for things like free stock footage and creepy ambient soundtracks, which you can get and which are easy to access. So that, that, was, the, that was how I started. Initially, I was very interested in things like aliens. Um, around that time, I'd been making creepy videos on unsolved mysteries and things like that. So <laughs> that it, it, it began about aliens and uh, stuff like that. But then each, each time I make a video, um, I try to make it better than the last one. So like every time I watch one back, I think, oh, the, this bit of the audio was bad or oh, there's, this is a glitchy graphic. And I just try and like, for the next one, I try and make it that little bit better and, and take, a, take a small step with it that in terms of editing or research or adding a new piece of software to the mix. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's basically how it's been going for the last four years. I've done about, I used to upload more, but now I do about one video a month. Two I mean, weeks of that lot. is research and two weeks of that editing. I enjoy it though. I actually got, I started YouTube as a full-time job in uh, 2020, I think uh, in the middle of 2020. And I just finished university and like for the last well, two years, I've been doing lots of, uh, lots of coursework, lots of exams. And after I finished, I just, I had all this free time and the YouTube was a nice way to carry on that because I enjoy learning. And it was a nice way to sort of compartmentalize my learning because after each video, I can then just done zip up the file and proceed to a completely new topic so now it's uh covered most of the areas on space on my channel a couple of times and uh by now now i'm like confident and familiar in the field i can read astron astronomical papers and yeah like you said going down the rabbit hole i'm just a bit better at that now than i used to be when i started I love how you initially were just like, what What has the best stock footage? It's like, it wasn't <laughs> like you're, I mean, it wasn't like this crazy 
um, underlying knowledge that you had yearned for and like perfected. It was just like, yeah, I'm just going to like learn this new subject and then just become a complete expert at communicating it. Like that, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty cool, man. What did you study at uni university? Computer science, actually. So I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist, but I am a computer scientist. And to be honest, computer science is a huge part of my um, video production because I think, I think computer science it, it teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to break break things down into little into steps. Like programmers have to break things down into steps and tackle things in a sequential logical order. So when I'm researching, I structure it like. This is going to sound really weird. I structure it like a giant piece of code and I shift things around. I have little blocks of information and yeah, I, I apply lots of stuff, like lots of the, the, the thinking techniques that I learned in my degree to what I do today. But my ultimate passion and the reason I've always done it is because I uh, like writing. Ever since I was a kid, writing has been the thing that I have really sort of been good at and enjoyed. And I think the space, the stuff, among a bunch of other ways I've gone with my um, channel, including the gaming when I was writing commentaries, it's always come down to the writing and the analysis and the building up a video and then the delivering it. Well, the the writing is great. There's a a sound effect we use on this show when we have a bad caller and I got to kick him off. But uh, when I'm listening to your videos, or a lot of times I listen to them, but also when I watch them, this is the sound effect that constantly comes into my head. And it's this one. Because I, I'm just like you'll like say something like I'll learn something and just be like ah like I, I can't my brain can't handle it I'm just it's just so too much to wrap my head around and so I just imagine that classic scream and so uh, I might be using that Is a little that the bit. Doom in this scream? It's not a doom scream. It's like a stock scream that's just stock. in a lot of stuff, you know, from like the 90s. Just... Well, it makes perfect sense the way that you're describing how you put these together. Now I totally understand why they're so good, because first of all, you're a creative writer and you've been writing for a long time. And you kind of if you know that technique and then you couple it with like computer science and the computation and like um, compartmentalization of little data sets and then are able to like extrapolate that into something that's as big as space. Yeah, no, totally. It totally makes sense now. But it is so interesting because I've never heard anyone be able to do what you do in the way that you do. Um Before we before we get more into some of the these video subjects that you've tackled, Sam, what is your favorite space movie? Uh, probably, I'd, I mean, Star Wars is my favorite film series <laughs> of all time. I know it's probably the most generic answer ever, but I just Star Wars, particularly, particularly the uh, the the original ones, mm -hmm. the, the 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 Death Star ones. Are, they're they're my favorite space films. I just think they do the cosmic horror element of it so well. It's diff it's really difficult to make space like space films that are dramatic and serious good but i think they 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 did a good one star trek well, as well but i'm definitely more into star wars neil degrasse tyson would say it's not scientifically accurate so how could you enjoy it you know <laughs> he likes to shit on every space movie to make make you have no fun uh, i think i mean uh i mean i don't know if you want to share your i think gravity is my favorite space movie really because it helped me 
it's I feel like no other film every film in space you're just like floating around and in, mm-hmm. in zero gravity or whatever. Gravity is the first film that really makes you like understand what it's like to be in zero gravity. I've thought that was like incredible. George Clooney and Sandra Bullock's little yeah cuts banter cut George Clooney out yeah the banter and him singing the song. Sam, maybe you can do an edit floating of away where you remove George Clooney from the film. I, I feel like I would have appreciated. I mean it. Yeah, I mean sometimes these big name actors kind of take take me out of it, you know. But I agree that visually it was very epic. And I guess uh, my other favorite space movie, which we will get to later in the episode, is Event Horizon. Oh yeah. That was a that was fucking great, man. Um, you have a favorite space movie, Abby? I mean, I want to say that I I would have said Interstellar before, but then I just rewatched The Arrival, and even though that's totally not a space movie, it's an alien movie. I still was like really hit. <laughs> it's a space. Movie. I was like sobbing on the plane. Everyone was just like, "Jesus Christ, hold yourself together." Um, yeah, no, it, it's great, especially when you forget like the main the main points that are um, the real drops in that movie. So. You know, I I, I want to also just, like, get this from you. Like, what has been the biggest dosed fact that you've learned about space, Sam? I'm sure there's countless, but I guess is there something that keeps you up at night when you're in bed thinking about the cosmos and thinking about just how insane it all is? Everything that you've researched up until this point, is there is there one thing that's just, like, if you were to just drop it on someone and be like, boom. Yeah, I would say undoubtedly. Um, it's just, it's there's this uh, there's this Carl Sagan quote, and he says something like, "We are a way for the universe to know itself." And I mean, obviously, it's quite a well established fact that we came from um, material from the sun, and that that everybody says like we are stardust. But I think when you look into it, when you look into the fact that we are the universe becoming aware of itself, it just it's just sort of mind melting and fascinating layer to it because it's like we we are the universe trying to figure itself out and what does that tell you about the mission and the goal of life and the goal of reality if we're a part of the universe that's trying to figure out itself i just i I think that is a a, a astonishing part part of reality really such a good point yeah you know that um (laughs) that reminds me of a norm mcdonald quote when he I hate to bring up Neil deGrasse Tyson again. But, uh, <laughs> Jesus, okay, this is the last time. I have a lot of hostility towards time. Neil deGrasse Tyson, what? but um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, I actually just saw this yesterday. He tweeted, the universe is blind to our sorrows and indifferent to our pain. And Norm MacDonald, the late Norm MacDonald said, Neil, there's a logic in your, in your little aphorism. There's a logical flaw in your little aphorism that seems quite telling. Since you and I are part of the universe, then we would also be indifferent and uncaring. Perhaps you forgot, Neil, that we are not superior to the universe, but merely a fraction of it. That's brilliant. I think he was actually had pretty late cancer at that point. Maybe he was, you know, definitely like getting more existential. But I mean, it's totally true. And it really does put things into perspective that as small and microscopic as we do feel, there is something quite profound about our ability to be aware, studying time and space, like looking back at fucking eons of time and looking at a map like a literal visual map of what the universe was and what it's turning into and being able to comprehend that is truly like unbelievable and really um really quite something sam let's first start by defining some of these terms because it is a little bit 
confusing, you know, especially when you get into the topic of perhaps multiple universes. But let's start by just defining what we mean when we hear the terms universe and space. Well, the 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 universe is um, well. Starting with space, space is is the three D volume inside the universe. It's the um, it's the backdrop to the universe's matter. Whereas when we say the universe, we mean all of all points of space at all points in its life. So so time included. Now, there's many ways you can visualize uh, the universe with the extra dimension of time put in, but. Yeah, that is, uh, that's uh, that's it basically. As I understand it, the universe includes all points in its life. And starting with the Big Bang, I mean, this is this is totally insane, and I actually just can't even really wrap my mind around this. But starting with the Big Bang, the universe was microscopic, like at the beginning, right? I mean, so what happened? How much did the universe expand in those? Not only like we're not talking about like years we're talking about seconds nanoseconds nanoseconds and how and also like how do we know this <laughs> how do we know that this happened and like and and the um just like extrapolating out from like that microscopic entity like walk us through how just that process and was the universe really like condensed into like a, a pinpoint I would, I, I mean, it, whether it was actually truly mi- microscopic by our our arbitrary definition of what microscopic is remains to be seen, but it certainly was a lot smaller and much less expanded. Now, you mentioned uh, in the first nanoseconds the radical expansion and scaling up. That is a theoretical prediction of uh, certain t- certain parameterizations of the Big Bang. So the Big Bang model, there are a number of different applications to it, which all say slightly different things about how the universe proceeded. The radical expansion one, which uh, involves cosmic infla- inflation, which is predicted by the standard model, says that the universe was scaled up something like about 10 to the power of 78 times. I'm not exactly sure what values to associate with that but i do know that's the same as nanometers going to light years so uh, i mean obviously no one no one knows what what yeah so expand the volume expand sorry there's a little delay since we're on opposite sides of the world so uh but um so you said the universe expanded in the big bang 10 to the power of 78 which i guess if you look at a number that's a one with 78 zeros and that's the the amount the volume expanded a multiple of that yeah, how much it was scaled up by? Dang. No one, no one really. Well, no one knows at all what could have caused this, and there are many, many theories, including that it's linked to dark energy because uh, the universe expanded so fast. And now, these days, we're seeing that the universe is speeding up in its expansion again. So, some people think that it's related to dark energy. But then there's others that believe it never it never happened like that at all. They believe that the ten to the power of seventy eight in a fraction of a second is 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 is, is impossible and and would violate too many law laws. But the main um, the main rationale for cosmic uh, cosmic expansion, uh, sorry, for cosmic inflation, the universe scaling up, is that the universe is so 
smooth if we look at things like the cmb and and the cosmos they all it appears to be so smooth and near isotropic with only small imbalances so it had to have scaled up but it had regardless of the numbers involved it has to have undergone a period where it grew very very radically in order to account for many of the sort of present day features that it has yes and it's a good place to start because this whole episode we're going to be focusing on the scale and so we're starting with that tiny little unknown size but something that was 10 to the power of 78 uh smaller than when it expanded in those first nanoseconds um and of course the universe is still expanding today which we'll get to in a minute and the interesting thing about this is we from the Hubble telescope and now the Webb telescope, like we, we know this is happening because of observations into space and being able to look actually back in time to what galaxies looked like, you know, 13 billion years ago. Um, but that's the real mystery is what we understand every, we, we feel that we understand a lot from the moment of the Big Bang on, but that, what started that and what preceded that is a total mystery, which we will circle back to at the end of the episode but abby did you have a yeah i mean this is, this might sound really dumb but like <laughs> could there be like multiple and i know that we're gonna get into like the multiverse thing later but could there be multiple big bangs i mean it's it, no you're spoiling the ending. okay 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 we'll go but we'll get back to that mike keep, we're getting, keep uh, the, sorry yeah, i'm just yeah. i'm already we're starting like, small we're starting okay, small okay, we're okay, gonna okay, get okay, bigger as we go let's, let's, okay go to the go to what um, yeah, so I guess before we get into the next thing, Sam, we should establish that we need to talk about like space time to be able to understand some of this stuff too. So could you just uh, take us through like what what that is and how it helps our understanding? Well, we know that space and time are linked thanks to Einstein. His theory of relativity out, outlines general relativity outlines the links between space and time and their links, and that is the general model we use to apply to space when we try and work things out, like how the universe has grown. So we believe as a part of standard cos uh, cosmology that space and time are linked. And the best way to illustrate it is the speed of light. The speed of light is where you will see a definite link between space and time. And this is another one of those like really trippy examples that I like. If, if you can imagine, um, if you can imagine a, a rocket traveling across space at say 99% the speed of light or something. And then you imagine lights on the inside of that rocket, which have photons bouncing around. If you, those photons, if you were to track the paths as they bounce around the ship that is moving close to light speed, in addition to the light speed they're moving at, they've also got the added distance of the ship they're traveling in, which technically means that they should have covered more, more distance than light speed in a second. And at this point, because you can't go faster than light speed, time slows down. So I know that sounds probably very like complicated and I didn't explain it very well, but time dilation, which is the distortion and essentially elongating of time as you approach light speed is a very real thing. And even, and it happens around black holes and it happens when you're moving very close to light, uh, light speed. The best way we could dis uh, dis uh, illustrate this on earth is if you were to put a, atomic clock to the ISS which moves at about seven kilometers a second over a very long time you would see a very slight difference and discrepancy between an atomic clock on the ISS than on earth it would run very slightly slower because when you move at a significant speed you are time sort of bends and that's how that that's how space and time are, are linked at a high level going back to interstellar um when you watch that movie 
I'm assuming that you've seen it. Um, what did you I, think I'm about sorry, like, that I've, time? I've, nev- I've actually never seen it. Sam! <laughs> Sam! I'm sorry. I don't. I don't watch a lot of TV or movies. I, I I'm not much of a TV or a movie oh, person. We're not going to spoil it for you. But okay, you then go, you, you got to go put that in right now. Yeah, because it it is it does portray. I mean, probably not in in the way that you're explaining it, but I mean, it does portray kind of the bending of time and and how interesting it is. Like when you you know going through the black hole and all the hypothetical scenarios of that, and then. Also, just like traveling to different planets and having time react completely differently in relation to Earth and and different things like that. So it is like probably the best, I guess, hypothetical interpretation of what you're talking about that really like makes you understand that the, the theory that you're explaining right not theory but i mean like what you're explaining right now which is just the phenomenon really, yeah, yeah. The phenomenon yeah and, and sam what what you said is i think really trippy to really think about that time is time is like bent or warped by two things motion like your speed you know and the closer you get to the speed of light the slower time goes until it stops and also gravity the more intense gravity the slower time will go as well until it would actually stop as well. So we're going to get into the black hole stuff later, but that's just kind of wild to think about. Like time, we understand time is a linear thing. And you're mentioning that space time relationship, like time being the fourth dimension, but time is like, it's relative. It's like, mm-hmm. it changes based on things like speed and gravity is just kind of wild to me. Yeah. That's, that's what the relative in relativity is. The, uh, the time, the time moves in different ways for different experiences. But you can you can see you can see time's links to space at under extreme conditions like extreme velocity or extreme gravity. So that's how you see the space time effect in practice. Let's talk about how the universe has changed and how it's developed over time. Um, back to what I was saying about how we are in this kind of interesting vantage point and a unique position in our development of evolution that we we actually have the ability to look back in time um, and see how the development of the universe um, compares to earlier periods. I guess walk us through that evolution of more and more complex structures, the recycling of material, and the cosmic web. Sure. The first thing to note is that we, we, when we look out, we can't actually see all the way back to the Big Bang. What we see, the the oldest light in the universe is the cosmic microwave background, which are microwave photons left over from the Big Bang. In terms of looking out into the universe, we can only see, at the moment, this should get better with James Webb, the James Webb telescope, but we can only see objects back to about 300 million years or so after it happened. But we do know we can use our observations, we can use the cosmic microwave background, and we can use just general common sense and physics to reverse engineer what happened and the key principle is that at the moment of the big bang when the universe was created it crossed the threshold at which it went from infinite infinite density infinite heat with no sense of time to finite that's when the universe became microscopic suddenly for unknown reasons it occupied a finite volume with a finite temperature and a finite density And then ever since, while the universe has has been expanding, this density has constantly been falling, and thus so has the temperature. So the universe, as it has evolved, has fallen down from basically infinite temperature, 
through every temperature down to its current temperature, which is close to absolute zero. So the universe's evolution has been dictated by it falling through the different uh, thresholds for temperature. So for about the first 20 minutes after, uh, after the Big Bang, the universe was the temperature of the core of a star. And so fusion was occurring all over the universe, but it only happened for 20 minutes while the universe was that hot. And that's what gave us our early elements, our hydrogen and our helium and a tiny amount of lithium. But because this only lasted, this event known as nucleosynthesis, where the universe was essentially one big star, it only lasted about 18 minutes. There wasn't enough time for heavier elements to create to be created. Oh, now, you mentioned the universe recycling material. That's where actual stars come in. So once these uh, elements, well, they weren't really elements, they were atomic nuclei at this point uh, with free roaming ele electrons. Once they'd been created, after about 380,000 years, they, uh, it cooled to the level, it cooled to about 3,000 Kelvin, at which point electrons latched onto nuclei to create neutral atoms. And then from there, these atoms have been being attracted towards each other by gravity through dark matter, building into the first stars, then the first clusters, then the galaxies, and then over the last 10 billion years, ever more complex galaxies. It's wild that the universe is, what, 13.8 billion years old, and we can hone in on 18 minutes. <laughs> we know yeah. that something lasted 18 minutes at the beginning of the universe is, is trippy. And so uh, as this all this is happening, and there's these different phases of elements being formed, all that, there's also the structures of the universe, uh, nebula and galaxies and stars those are it's not that the big bang happened and then the universe as we know it today just suddenly appeared it's been these billions of years of of basically i don't know if you could call it evolution of galaxy but just like more and more complexity and stability so things are a lot more unstable in the beginning and so we're we're basically living at a moment in the life of the universe when there is a greater degree of of stability for things to be the way they are and and Abby mentioned that recycling of material, meaning that the universe was forming structures and those structures were falling apart and being formed into more complex structures. So I, I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit more, walk us through what's happening there. And if you can also uh, explain us this concept of the, the cosmic web that is also forming around this time. Sure. So I, I, I totally agree with the word evolution. I think it, cosmic evolution is what I would call it. And in order to understand the cosmic web, you sort of need to you need to incorporate dark matter, which is something we haven't really touched on. No one really knows what what how what dark matter was doing in the early universe, but uh, when at three hundred eighty thousand years, when the first atoms formed, dark matter had already begun condensing into a a structure. Now, dark matter is a particle which is believed not to interact with light and it doesn't, it has, uh, it has mass and has gravity, but it doesn't follow the standard laws of particle interactions. So when dark matter particles come together, they can only collapse to a certain length before they, they can only collapse to a certain density before they stop because normal matter, as atoms collapse, they lose energy that keep, uh, that would otherwise keep them apart. Dark matter doesn't. So rather than forming dark matter planets and stars, dark matter in the universe formed this giant network of sponge-like branches, which is the skeleton for the cosmic web. This, this dark matter structure formed out of slightly imbalanced dark matter particles. Then, after two or three hundred million years, 
uh, of atoms existing in space, they formed the first stars along these dark matter branches. The dark matter branches acted as a gravitational well, like a, mag- a magnet, which sped up the formation of uh, normal matter. So about 200 million years along these dark matter branches, we got the first stars coming out of the hydrogen and helium atoms. These stars grouped into the first clusters. And after about 300 million years, we had the first dwarf galaxies, which were very, uh, very sort of immature and torrid. And as you said, a lot more chaos. They weren't very stable places and they were flooded with radiation. And then gradually, along the arms of the cosmic web, facilitated by its gravity, these galaxies have been hitting one another, colliding, merging. Universal distances have been getting slightly larger and gas has been being used up. And so today... We see a much we see a much less matter dense spread in the universe. Everything is collected into quite calm, nice, spacious galaxies, and yeah, that is it essentially. The the dark matter allowed allowed things to stick together and building complexity over four billion fourteen billion years. Sorry. And dark matter is just the inference of the missing matter that we know has to exist, right? I mean, that I, I know it was initially discovered. I guess no earlier than like a hundred years ago about just what has to be there in order to really hold these networks together. But- yes, that's correct. It's it's never been proven, but it has it is inferred, and the thing is, it's inferred via multiple lines of evidence. So it was discovered. It was discovered about ninety years ago by Fritz Vicky, who saw that galaxy clusters didn't have enough mass needed to keep them together. Then it was independently discovered moving into the 1980s by Vera Rubin and Kent Ford, who realised that the Milky Way galaxy didn't have enough visible matter to keep itself held together. And then ever since, we've seen something called gravitational lensing, which is when light photons are warped by uh, gravitational fields. We've seen that in space occurring within in seemingly invisible patches of empty space, which implies that invisible mass uh, exists there. So dark matter, it's never been proven, but scientists are very confident it exists because there are these very contrasting interlinked lines of evidence which help us to agree on certain properties it may have. And no counter argument is able to satisfy the same number of lines of evidence, if that makes sense. It does. And that's such a fascinating subject in itself. Maybe we can have you on again to explore dark matter and (laughs) the possibilities that exist with that. But let's... I want to I want to bring it to just another point of just the insanity of the scale that we're talking about. I mean, let's just let's just start here. Like if you're looking at the observable universe, not even I mean we're talking about through the highest grade telescopes that exist today. How many galaxies are observable? It depends who you ask. Um we obviously we we aren't able to get a definite number. There are people who say two trillion but there are also contrasting independent studies who say numbers closer to about 200 billion either way it's it's a certainly crazy amount a crazy number which allows for septillions of stars and a lot of possibilities right so yeah so how many stars are in our galaxy it is we the estimate is between 100 and 400 billion and the reason we can't get a more precise estimate is because the center of our galaxy blocks just over half of the stars so we can't actually count the stars the same way we can with a relatively side-on galaxy like andromeda or the triangulum galaxy so 
a pessimistic uh, estimate would be 100 billion, whereas the more optimistic would be about 400 billion. And that's that's just in the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. Yeah, the Milky Way and also sort of it's more, I mean, galaxies, we see galaxies as their visible components, the stars and gas, but they do have much larger structures, which you would see with more specialist equipment. Like they have, they have atmospheres of plasma, they have stray stars, they sometimes have uh, belts of stars, which are so dim, you can't really see them. But yeah, encompassing all those things, the streams, maybe the little blobs and clusters around it yeah between one and four hundred billion wow we're really uh in a bad place to see that like (laughs) the light pollution around us is probably only see probably a dozen stars not 400 (laughs) billion wish we could see more or 200 billion with those that aren't blocked remind us again if you as we're looking at the night sky with the human eye how old are we seeing these stars again or what What are we stage yeah what what exactly are we seeing well, I, I I can't remember exactly, but I believe we see we can see about two thousand stars, and these are all within a sort of maybe two or three hundred light year radius, maybe a bit more actually. I know there's some red giants that are about four hundred light years away. You the the light that we see in the night sky, it its age will be sort of on the scale of a hundred or hundreds of years. Um, I don't I don't actually know what the farthest star you can see with the naked eye is. But yeah, it'll be it'll be sort of hundreds of years old, maybe pushing a thousand. But obviously, on a on a on a on a cosmic scale, that is not much much at all. So we're right. only when we look at the night sky and that band across the sky. You know, when it's a when you go out in a really clear night, a place with really great visibility, there's that band that you see of like the you can see a little purpley whatever. So that's we're all we're seeing is the Milky Way galaxy. So like I know that when you look at the Milky Way galaxy, like the spiral, like we're kind of on the outer edge of it. So when we're looking at that band, isn't that us kind of just looking in towards the middle of the Milky Way galaxy? And and so we're just seeing what's in our own galaxy. Is that right? Yeah, we 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 see we see our we see the our side of the core. Um, I. Not sure how, actually, off the top of my head, how many arms the, the Milky Way has, but we're we're in one of its spiral arms, looking inwards toward towards the core, where there are a lot of stars and there's a lot of gas and there's a lot of emissions. So, for all types of wavelengths, it is it's very difficult to see beyond there because it's just it's chock a block, very dense, full of interference. That's, I mean, I remember I learned that a couple of years ago, and it just changed the way I looked at the sky. It's that like. We're not just like looking out into space, like we're looking towards the center of our galaxy. And, and we're and, on one of the arms of it. Like, yeah, yeah. Like outside looking in. in and like the thing that's crazy is and the fact that we're just seeing our own like neighborhood, our own mm-hmm. little piece of our little galaxy. And when you really start to try to comprehend this scale, you know, we're not seeing 400 billion stars, obviously. We're seeing, like you said, <laughs> look, when you look at the sky, you think, oh, my God, this is incredible. The space is so yeah. vast. But we're really just seeing, like, the <laughs> smallest fraction you can imagine. And if, if, our, if other galaxies are like the Milky Way, like a comparable number of stars, and there is around 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there is potentially... Two trillion, two trillion galaxies. galaxies in the observable universe. Uh, 
I don't know what's two trillion times four hundred billion. <laughs> it lot. just uh, it just is a really it's a scale that there's you can't even like write on a piece of paper the number. It would take you a long time. It certainly would. Unfortunately, though, not all of these galaxies will be uh, habitable. There's lo- lots of them, um, like elliptical galaxies, where the largest concentrations of, of stars are. So IC one one zero one, which used to be the largest galaxy, has a hundred trillion stars. But oh, they are sure. so jam, they're so jam packed together that there's just there's a lot of stellar wind, there's a lot of radiation. It would make it makes it doesn't make it impossible, but it makes the chances for life and certainly complex life a lot more difficult. So there may well be galaxies out there that are just completely silent. They don't have any any life in them whatsoever. They may have hundreds of billions of stars and nothing there. And there may be galaxies like the Milky Way, which have taken their time and now become quite idealistic places, which are swimming with awakenings of life. Personally, I think that other life definitely exists, but maybe maybe not as complex as we are, certainly in galaxies like the Milky Way. Yeah, it was. I mean, I wanted to wait to see if we, we got to that point, but especially starting off as someone who was interested in aliens and then getting into this topic, I mean, just the scale of the cosmos and really wrapping your mind around how many galaxies could exist in the observable universe and how, I mean, the amount of complex, you know, Milky Way type galaxies that could host complex life. It it does seem kind of insane not to think that there are aliens out there, man. <laughs> right? I mean... Yeah, I, I, I think... I. I mean, it depends on your point of view, but personally, I think it takes a lot more scientific arguing to say that we're completely alone than we're than we're not. I think the only actual explanation for us being completely alone is that, like, a god created humans and the universe, and that would be the only. There's, if it's just it's like, up to probability, there's, you know, it seems like impossible that there are just the perfect conditions would only exist here on Earth, and so I guess the only way you can not think that there's other life in this vast cosmic expanse is that we were especially created which is the most improbable scenario right i don't know anyway uh, go ahead no sorry sorry carry on i was going to ask you when you said that the 300 i think you said 300 billion stars that could be compacted in one of these galaxies like what would that even look like is it just like a big giant exploding light oh shit okay that's way crazier so like what (laughs) i mean what what would that even be just like a crazy giant orb of of i guess they're far enough apart to not like merge into each other but man that's just yeah stars stars don't don't it's very very unlikely that two stars ever collide in even even through galaxy mergers because the, the volume between them is hundreds of millions of times larger than the stars themselves so even when galaxies collide mm-hmm. their stars it's it's likely that even a, a single star will be involved in a collision as oh, for an elliptical oh. galaxy they they sort of from the outside to us they take on the appearance of a big golden orb of light which has two parts there's on the inside there's a more defined halo shape of golden light where there's slightly more stars and then there's in the case of IC 1101, the former largest galaxy, there's a more outlying halo of diffuse of diffuse stars with lower densities and generally fewer stars. 
which give it the bulk of its diameter. And these these more diffuse outlying halos are extended and given their width by collisions. Like tidal forces whip these stars out and puff them up and inflate them and make them look like big golden orbs. On the inside, it would just look like having a chocolate block night sky full of yellow stars. But I couldn't tell you for sure because I've not been in one. <laughs> That's wild. And so, so now we've established like our size of what we can observe this you know trillions of galaxies each with hundreds of billions if not hundreds of trillions of stars um before we get into kind of the next zoom out step uh there's something i wanted you to explain that i heard you say in one of your videos i was wondering if you could go a little more into it is that you know we kind of exist at like the perfect time to observe the universe um so i wanted could you could you explain that to our audience Sure. Well, um, basically, it, if to be fair, I, th- I think I think perfect. I think we live in an ideal time. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it is the absolutely perfect. It might time. have been better. That, <laughs> might have been better yeah, a billion just, years it's ago. Just, it's just. It's just for the po- poetic poetic endings to videos when I say stuff like that. I mean, we do, we do, we do live in a good a good time for it though, because. In the future, in the future, when the universe's expansion, which is accelerating, that will have pushed all galaxies out of view. And ultimately, our, our view of the universe will, will vanish. But that's in the very far future. Obviously, earlier on in the universe's life, in certain places, you might have had a better view of things going on. Like, certainly, if we existed about three billion years earlier, so around 10 billion years into the universe's life, we might have seen how the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies formed. There used to be other galaxies in our local galactic group. So maybe if we existed a couple of billion years earlier, we would have seen those. But also there was a lot more gas in the early universe. So maybe seeing extremely vast distances would have been a lot more difficult because the space was slightly more clouded. But certainly, yeah, certainly we are in a very good time to see it. Um, in the future, in the future, I do think that before the universe fades, I do believe that more galaxies will come into view in the observable universe. So, so, uh, in maybe a couple of billion years, there might be even more distant galaxies that we can observe, but we do, we do live in an ideal time. Certainly, certainly I say that. Yeah, Abby. I was just going to go back to something that someone brought up in the chat based on what we were just talking about, which is um, the Drake equation. Frank Frank Drake, who basically statistically calculated, you know, the likelihood of extraterrestrial life if you just calculate, you know, the amount of planets that could have possibly seen evolution, you know, like complex evolution. And his his estimation was 100 million a hundred million planets that could have hosted some sort of complex life um, evolutionary processes on those planets. It's it's pretty pretty amazing to think of something that massive, you know, that many different planets that could have extraterrestrial life from all different scales and um, you know microscopic to who knows, right? Um, but I don't know. Do you do you see any faults with the Drake equation? Have you really looked into that, Sam? Um, I, so I think the things like the Drake equation, things like the Kardashev scale, they all fall into a, in, in order to contemplate these scientific questions, you have to slightly step into the bounds of speculation. And I certainly think the Drake equation, I've never actually 
delved into in a, in a, a big video. But the 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 Kardashev scale, I think, I think they they they're based around how we expect life to mm-hmm. form. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the Drake equation, but I I, I I take stuff like that as a pinch of salt. However, I do agree with the notion that there's probably hundreds of millions of worlds that have been capable of supporting some kind of life and it makes you it makes you wonder why like it makes you wonder why galaxies are so well suited for this like why 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 are they so good at giving rise giving rise to life because obviously it wasn't all that wet always that way but yes yeah, certainly there are there are a, there is a curiously high number of a high curiously high potential for life in the universe and yeah i think one of the most mind blowing things is wondering why that is that is right. Uh, one more question before we get into our next zoom out of the, the scale of the cosmos is I heard you say something in one video that tripped me out to this idea that if you could travel in a straight line, like very fast, let's say the speed of light or close to the speed of light, uh, you said you would never actually leave the universe. Did I get that? I hear that right. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> How's, that's How? enough, that's How's that? How's that? That's another Carl Sagan quote. Uh, look deep enough into the universe and eventually you'll see the back of your own head. Now, the best oh. way to think about this, the best way to think about this is to think about being in a plane of flying around the Earth. What would happen if you just flew round around the Earth? You would never fall out or run out of Earth to fly across. Gravity would bring you back round. Now, there are, a, there are a lot of similarities. It really helps when envisioning space on a large scale to think about it like the outside surface of a sphere, not the inside, but the outside surface. And so um, basically, if you if you were to go far enough into space, gravity, the gravity of galaxies and matter on the inside would just bring you down to the same spot. As far as we can tell, the universe has no physical edges. There is there is no edges and there is no notion of an outside. If you go far enough, gravity brings you background and your center of the center of the universe is relative to your point of view so yeah we, we've never been able to detect any signs that say that the universe might have an edge so we think yeah if you if you were to go far enough and deep enough into the universe it would be like going circling the earth you would just come back around to the same place and it's growing too it is imagine the uh, imagine you said the this uh, the Earth is like the uh, sorry. The universe is like the outside of a sphere. If you imagine that sphere in spa- expanding, or like a if an ant standing on a balloon that's inflating, that's how the universe expands. The surface area increases everywhere at the same rate. So, what? Yeah. Holy shit! It's like a balloon balloon. Yeah. So the the fact that you can never leave the universe, even if you travel in a straight line as fast as you can, it's I still can't comprehend that. I believe you. I can't understand. <laughs> I'll take your word <laughs> for it. I understand if I fly in an airplane around the earth, I will stay on earth, but I don't, I do not, I still can't comprehend that, which is fucking wild that you just end up in the place that you started. Um, but that gets us to this next point. So what all we've been talking about so far is the observable universe. So this two trillion or so galaxies 
and we can look back into the the beginning of the Big Bang, you know, especially now with the Webb telescope, you know, looking at something that's 13 billion years old, very, very old stuff, uh, which is trippy in itself that we're like yeah, looking back. Right. At, it's like finding a photo from like an antique photo, but it's a photo from 13, 13 billion, billion years, years ago. ago. But um, so this is I still don't really understand how these you, telescopes can do that. But <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, I don't either. Um, <laughs> so there's. Th- this observable universe. And so there's something called a cosmic horizon where there's a limit to how far we can see uh, and we can't see past it. So could you explain to us what this cosmic horizon is? And if we're talking about an observable universe, does that mean that there is an unobservable universe? There certainly is. And it is a very, uh, it's a very complex mystery. The observable universe. So I went, I did just say like the universe is the outside of a sphere for the observable universe. The observable universe is the inside of a sphere. Our observable field of view, which is arbitrary is defined by how, how much light is reaching the earth. Like when you, you, we said earlier about looking up at the light from the stars, that's, those are photons that have been traveling for a certain amount of time to meet our eyes. The observable universe is made up of a collection of photons coming from all directions in the universe that have now just had time to travel across space to meet our our eyes, which means in a universe that is 13.8 billion years old, the farthest we should theoretically be able to see is around 13.8 billion light years. So um, people say that the observable universe is actually 93 billion light years. That is because that's because that's the size it is now. So we don't, so just discard that 93 billion light year motion for a second. Our observable field of view is defined by the the time light has had to, to, to reach, reach the earth. And then obviously there are, there are galaxies beyond that. We're sure there are galaxies beyond that. Uh, Just how many is another question. And this is when you come to the really difficult things to understand, but the cosmic horizon is the boundary that separates these two. And if you're to look at a Hubble deep field or a Webb deep field image, and you see all those galaxies on there, the cosmic horizon is the backdrop. It is the black space. It's the dark curtain that underlies these things. It's the point beyond which we can't see any further because light hasn't had enough time to reach the solar system. That's what our observable universe is. And over time, that will that will increase slightly as more light has time to reach the solar system. But beyond the observable universe, there is an unspecified amount that we don't know of galaxies outside. Because we said that the universe expands everywhere and doesn't have edges, it has been able to expand far more than it would if its edges were expanding at the speed of light. So basically, because it inflates everywhere and it has undergone things like cosmic inflation, which scaled it up much faster than light, now we know that there is a significant portion outside of our field of view which is which is cut off from us because of the speed because of the slow speed of light over the longest distances two things really quickly go back to the cosmic inflation concept and how it's beyond the speed of light and the concept that you said put it outside your mind but let's go back to it then what did you say 96 billion that that's like how yeah please the, when we when we look at distant galaxies in the observable universe, we say that they're up to 13 billion light years away. That's how far they were when light was emitted. And then that light reaches us from 13 billion light years away. That's, that's fine, blah, blah, blah. But then behind that light, the universe has been expanding. So when we say 93 billion light years, 
that is 93 billion light years is just how large the universe is now. So if you look at the galaxies that Webb sees about 13 billion light years away at the very edge of the observable universe, those objects are now about 30, well, about 46 billion light years away. So the universe has expanded about three, three times as the space it traveled through has expanded about three times as much since it was emitted. That's the co-moving distance. And that's why people say that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And what, what, what did you say? And, that, and that's, is that basically cosmic inflation? No, co- cosmic inflation is what we talked about at the start, the 10 to the 78. Oh, that it. was the, um, that was the, the, the idea that the universe was scaled up very quickly right, right. to N- account initially. for how neat it is. But yeah, the, the, the key thing to know is that the universe doesn't expand at the speed of light. Like when, when, when people who aren't familiar with the subject envision the universe expanding, they, envision a crystal ball full of galaxies which grows at the edges that's not what happens as i said earlier we are the outside of the sphere so if you're an ant standing on a balloon or if you drew dots on a balloon and then inflated the balloon from something on the surface all the surface area would be increasing at the same rate and because space is expanding everywhere it's not it's not constrained by the local domain of light speed so in a in a in a in a sentence the universe is much more expanded than the speed of light would allow if it was moving at the speed of light. And that's why we have an unobservable universe. Dang. So, (laughs) so is there a, uh, so what, what we've been talking about in this huge cosmic scale of what we know as the universe, the universe not just could be, but you're saying it's definitely bigger than what we can observe. Almost definitely. Probably 99% sure. And is there like, are there estimates of how much bigger it could be? Like, so if we estimate maybe two trillion galaxies in our observable universe, is there a, a guess as to how many could be in our unobservable universe? There is, and it is pretty mind blowing. But oh, I no. should say that it is, it, it's made it, it's made with with some science that you could question, which I'll explain in a minute. But basically, some physicists at Oxford came up with the idea that the unobservable universe is has a radius that is 250 times greater than the radius of the observable universe. This would mean that the universe is about 16 million times more voluminous than the observable universe, which, if you apply the two trillion galaxies, correlates to something like 30 quintillion or above. However, I mean, that, those are some truly mind-melting numbers, obviously, but that number was arrived at with a, uh, with a pretty speculative method. Many of us, many of us expect the universe to be round and curved and have edges that make it a sphere, which has been expanding. But scientists expect to find some sort of curvature if the universe has, if the universe is finite and not infinite, then it should have a shape and we should be able to detect curvature of that shape. When these Oxford physicists tried to do that, they couldn't detect any curvature. So what they, one conclusion they arrived at was, all right, the universe may have curvature. But like it, but like, but like a human standing on the surface of the Earth, we're too small to notice this curvature, and that's where the 250 times the radius figure came from. If there's no curvature, but the universe is finite, then the unobservable universe must be 16 million times more voluminous. Holy but that that isn't that that isn't cast iron that isn't cast iron science though. There are other explanations for the reason we don't see curvature in the universe, which would take a long time to explain. 
I mean, that makes sense, though. You know, I mean, if we're seeing if we can observe that far back, it, it is kind of crazy that there is no curvature. And I, I could see where well, the estimation comes from. The, the, curvi- the curvature thing is actually something I'm tackling in an upcoming video. It, it, it can, it could be an illusion. Like mm-hmm. the one, one idea is that the universe is a donut shape and we exist on a scale so small that to us, that donut appears like a cylinder because we see what looks like a cylinder and we don't see the curvature. So that's one way of thinking. That's one way of thinking about it. But, um, yeah, uh, so the 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 whole thing that the unobservable universe may be x millions of times more voluminous is just is just one answer. More more um, pessimistic estimates put the universe around uh, the unobservable universe at around maybe like twice the volume of the observable universe. So there are these more pessimistic estimates, which are just as which which should which should like take up just as much of your attention as the as the more wild one i know we like to get absorbed by the really wild estimates but there are there are others i mean if you just said twice as big initially i would have been (laughs) (laughs) just as blown away (laughs) i'm like kind of it's i mean it's really insane to think of the biggest estimate i mean what the hell just twice as big is crazy enough i mean it makes sense like why would we you know a couple hundred years ago science thought that you know, there is just our solar system, then a mm-hmm. star, and then we figure mm-hmm. out, oh, man, mm-hmm. there's some more, like, solar <laughs> systems, and there's this, oh, we're just a part of this galaxy. And, like, everything keeps getting bigger. Our discoveries keep leading us to realize that the universe is, the known universe is bigger and bigger than we thought. Just the same way with, like, that things keep getting smaller and smaller, like we thought we found mm-hmm. the smallest thing, and that things keep getting smaller. It's like, why would we think we found an end on either end? You know, it's right. like we're, the, the idea that things could be far, far bigger than we know today um, kind of makes sense. Um, but the, this idea that uh, that definitely this, we've all been in these parameters of the known observable universe and that there's something definitely beyond that. We just don't know how big is pretty mind blowing. And so there's still going to be another step to this. We haven't fully zoomed out of the cosmic scale because we're going to get to another level here before we take some calls. Um, and to do that, uh, we need to first get into this concept of black holes. And so let's really quickly, Sam, if you can, um, tell us a little bit about black holes uh, and this idea that, like, you know, we talked about gravity in the beginning, that time would stop if you went into one. Um, so tell us what black holes are and, you know, that, how they are not uh, probably efficient means of traveling t- through a wormhole to other parts <laughs> of the universe. But um, there's also, like, there's different types, right? It's not just one kind of black hole, but there's, you know, maybe, like, uh, different different kinds based on the kind of stars that form them. Where and, does the stuff that. go? Well, that's what we're going to get to. Okay, that. okay. That's okay. the surprise I have in store. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's it's a big mystery. I mean, a, a black hole is uh, just an area of space time beyond a certain compression. If you, I mean, the, the black part is where the gravitational field is so strong that light photons are sucked into the middle of this hole rather than escaping. So the these these are these are areas where the gravity is so high that beneath it nothing can escape. And for ages, they seem to be a mathematical curiosity and there were doubts in the na- uh, over their nature. But now we know that these, this is very real and a gravitational collapse is an inevitable consequence of something like a 
star collapsing a star is big the biggest stars are so so heavy that they collapse with so much energy that not even the particles are able to resist not even individual particles are able to resist the collapse usually normal matter in something like a neutron star normal matter pushes back and the atoms can't be completely crushed but if the star the collapsing star is large enough then this collapsing star will just keep going all the way and all the way and all the way and eventually its matter becomes compressed in an area so small that the known laws of physics begin to break down and that's an area of of ongoing research what truly happens inside now you mentioned time stopping within a black hole this is one of the areas where space and time are linked um as you uh, as you go into a black hole space and time both become extremely stretched out space it's space time itself flows into the black hole and carries you with it and then this space time is pulled and warped to infinity so inside a black hole space becomes so stretched that once you're inside it would appear to be infinite and then also time becomes stretched out and it begins it doesn't stop but it runs infinitely slowly so on the inside of a black hole space and time are so warped and so stretched out that they both to you would appear to take on infinite values but that that is that's that's quite um that's one of the more uh speculative ideas about what happens inside a black hole generally black holes are they are a they are a they're a reasonable state for a, for a star or a gas cloud we know that they do exist out there so is that so Hold on, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much to explore here. But so collapsing stars are, are, is this one of the only ways that black holes are formed? Or is there any other sort of gravitational collapse that causes them? They, so there's, there's three kinds. Okay. The first kind was thought to have, was thought to have happened in the first seconds after the Big Bang. And they were primordial black holes, but they're very speculative. Um, you've got the stellar collapse black hole, which is a collapsing star. And then you've got direct collapse black holes, which are formed by supermassive gas clouds much larger than stars, which are collapsing. Now, we know that stars collapse to form. Uh, sorry, we know that gas clouds collapse to form stars, Like the gas gets more concentrated and it creates an oven, which gives rise to a star. But some gas clouds, especially in the early universe, were so big and so heavy that they skipped the whole star stage and collapsed and went straight to a black hole. Now, the, the types of black holes... Uh, are needed because they, some black holes have a lot of properties we don't understand. For example, black holes at the centres of large galaxies, like IC 1101 that we mentioned, weigh something like 40 billion times the mass of the sun. And the, our question is, how did they get that large just by eating at a rate of a few suns a year? So so we we, we come up with these theories like direct collapse, direct collapse black holes, the collapse of a gas cloud, to explain why some of the black holes in the universe are as large as they are. Oh, so there, hold on. Abby has something, but also <laughs> I want to hit on something you said. So there is black holes at the center of some galaxies that eat a few eat stars a, few, a year. Just a few stars a year. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 um, it, the rate at which a black hole eats is, is, is a measure. And I think our black hole eats something like one star per year. Triangular. You got one? It's like half a star per year. So the center yeah, of the Milky Way that, is a big black hole? Yes. Most galaxies, very, the vast majority of galaxies have a supermassive black hole inside. Uh, most, most black holes start with the collapse of a star. 
And then over time, these black holes will find each other emerge and they'll grow larger and larger. We don't know how exactly the largest multi-billion solar mass black holes that lie at the centre of galaxies came to form. But we do know that in the dynamics of a forming and a colliding galaxy, something with the unrivaled gravitational potential of a black hole, and especially a supermassive black hole, it will always sink towards the centre of the galaxy. Now, the rotation of a galaxy isn't actually that much to do with a black hole as it is to do with dark matter. But this, this black holes will always find, especially in spiral galaxies, they'll always find their way to the middle or round about the middle. And then everything in the galaxy orbits that central point. So yes, we have a, we have a black hole in the Milky Way. It's called Sagittarius A star, weighs about five, well, four million times the mass of our sun. Whereas the Andromeda galaxy has a black hole, which is thought to weigh about 200 million times the mass of our sun what? because Andromeda has, Andromeda has collided what? with more galaxies in its past. And in that, and I said earlier, there were other galaxies in the local group. Andromeda has eaten other galaxies and consumed their black holes leading to a massive black hole much larger than the one at the heart of the Milky Way relative to its size. Okay, hold on. So our black hole is just a little little guy just snacking, but there's ones that are... That eat other... <sighs> like, there's other galaxies that are absorbed by... Uh, generally, by and large, these days, black holes at the center of galaxies don't eat much. How much a supermassive black hole eats depends on the time of the universe or what's happening to the galaxy. The, the only real time a supermassive black hole, just because a black hole is, is, is really large, that doesn't mean that it eats proportionally, the amount it eats right. increases. In fact, in fact, it's the opposite because some black holes become so large that they guzzle up everything around them and then they really, and then they, they've exhausted the stuff around them and they aren't able to maintain their accretion disks, which is how particles continues to suck up everything in its path it, it, there's a limit no yeah this is this is there are there are quite a lot of misconceptions on black holes in this regard the the gravitational influence is not infinite it's, it's at, the, at the very center the density becomes influ uh, infinite but the gravity of a black hole does depend like everything else depends on its mass the difference is that black holes are the most massive objects in the universe like there, there's nothing that is a coherent structure that gets as heavy as a black hole. So naturally, they have the strongest gravitational fields. But in, in actual fact, black holes don't eat that much. Uh, you, you, an accretion disk surrounds a black hole with gas and matter and particles, but only a negligible fraction of these particles will experience enough drag force to actually fall into the black hole, and most of it will be ejected. Um, under, the, under the black part, that's where the gravity becomes so strong that it eats photons of light and photons of light can't be can't escape to reach our eyes but that's not an infinite gravitational field that's just one that's so strong that it manages to consume everything man and so if there's about if most galaxies have a black hole in the center and there's two trillion to whatever septillion possible number of galaxies uh that there are in the universe observable and unobservable that means there's you know that many black holes out there um just to to visualize a black hole i mean it basically would be shaped like a a funnel right because if we're talking about like space being like a big pulling out like a big bed sheet and holding it like tight and the way that gravity warps space would be like putting little balls on that bed sheet and the way that the bed sheet would 
curve into the shape of the ball would be that's like space time i guess but a black hole would be a, like a tiny little super heavy ball bearing that you would drop in there and it would just go down way far and and make this little funnel basically dipping down into like a point of like infinite smallness is that is that a way people can visualize a black hole yeah um it is if you so the, the space-time thing of the big blanket and the bedsheet, that is a way to help you visualise it. I'd, I'd have caution when actually thinking about that in practice. In, in practice, a black hole doesn't look like a funnel. In practice, a black hole looks like a black circle face-on because it is an orb of blackness where photons are being sucked into the black hole and so they can't escape. Um, the bedsheet uh, uh, example, it, it does help us visualise how a black hole works, though. Because the more the more you compress a, a unit of mass, the more it presses down on that bedsheet. So let's pretend that we could stretch the bedsheet to infinity without it ripping. We, with a black hole, we compress mass so much, so much that it pushes down and down and down into this bedsheet until it becomes exponentially deeper. And that and that's what a black hole is. It's like an exponential sinkhole down in the uh, in the sheet. But that is a very theoretical way for us to look at them. This may be a, forgive me if this is a dumb question, but how do we know that time essentially stops? How do we know that there's this infinite pool and that, you know, according to our, like, analysis that we can tell that the time literally becomes, like, infinite with our perception? We, we don't, we, we don't have cast iron proof that this happens inside a black hole but we do understand time dilation and we do understand space time and even though we can't go into a black hole and test our our, our theory we can use observations of the universe to verify other uh, other things and then we we can use these to verify einstein's interpretation of gravity and once we know that einstein's interpretation of gravity is the correct one that's when we start to make these predictions and then we see things like time dilation occurring in in real life and together that's why scientists become so confident of these theories and then what happens to a black hole because Ooh. how well does it eventually collapse i mean it eventually it, yeah, it doesn't exist forever sure, right sure, yeah let's go explain what happens to a black hole like when it dies and then yeah, we're going to yeah, get yeah, into yeah. The other yeah, side where of stuff black goes. Hole. But yeah, what what is like the timeline for? I mean, I know that they're all different, but like, give us like a a scale of like what happens to a black hole, and then when it when it dies, what happens to it? Well, for the for the vast majority of its life, it will either eat or or it won't eat. It will just sit there. But over very 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 vast time scales, like you're talking orders of magnitude of, of ten to a hundred, these. They, they essentially evaporate. Now, I, I'm actually not really very good on the whole subject of quantum physics and virtual particles. This is what Stephen Hawking dedicated his life's work to. But his, he, he predicted that these virtual particles appear in space uh, and they, they essentially chisel away at the black hole. I, I really, I'm, I'm, I can't give you like an accurate answer of how this works, but over very long timescales, he, he predicted that black holes would be would be chiselled away to the point that they evaporate completely. But this only happens in an unfathomably far point in the future. All right. So now, now we're going to get into. So, so when I was watching your your video, Sam, 
I feel like, you know, this is something that I've like kind of always been into. I mean, even since I was like in high school, in fact, you bring up Stephen Hawking's like, uh, uh, his, a brief history of time and actually the illustrated brief history of time was like my favorite book growing up. And like me and my brother would always like just trip, try to understand it, look at it together, all that stuff. Um, and so I felt like, I, and I kind of kept up with the stuff and I felt like I had a decent understanding of the universe. And then your videos got into some shit that I was like, Oh, I, not only did I have no, I'd never heard this stuff before and it's just a whole other level, but it was like, the kind of shit that I was like, oh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be thinking about this shit for the rest of my <laughs> life. Um, and before that, actually, before that, I did want to play something for you, Abby, and you, Sam. Uh, since we're on the topic of black holes, and before we get into this next stage of crazy shit, uh, NASA just released a data sonification of a black hole. Now we know that there's no, I guess, sound in space because there's no medium for sound waves to travel through, but, um they have basically found a way to find what figure out what a black hole sounds like i don't know how but wow. they are sound waves extracted outward from the center of a black hole and so i just wanted to play it for you both it's it's not too long but i just wanted you to hear this and our listeners to hear it cuz uh black holes are so trippy and nasa just released a couple weeks ago here's what one sounds like where is it that's what it sounds like. Wow. I didn't actually hear that. Oh, oh shit. Sorry. All right. I'll send it to you. That's all right. <laughs> it sounds exactly as long as like as you would expect. It. Yeah. It sounds... As long as the viewers heard it. It sounds scary. Um, okay, so anyways, back like to that. back to the back to the shit. Okay, so the question is: we know all this stuff's getting sucked into black holes, right? Massive amounts of things are getting sucked in. A huge amount of mass volume getting sucked in and going into this tiny, going into this funnel that gets infinitely and infinitely small, eating stars, eating galaxies, all that shit. So the question is: where does it go? Uh, there's a couple theories, and now we're getting into the realm of the purely theoretical, but theories that are could fall within the realm of physics as we understand it. Maybe one idea is that things just get sucked in and don't go anywhere, that they're just get crushed into a tiny little space, all that stuff. Um, I'm, two of the other theories I'm going to get into before we get into the big zinger, Sam, uh, one is that the black holes could actually open up like a wormhole and you could go into a black hole with the other side of a black hole is just another spot in the universe. And I think like almost like every sci-fi movie has this explanation where they take a piece of paper and then they fold it in half and put the pencil through the piece of paper and are like, that's, you know, that's a wormhole. You're just folding space and going through. Um, and then there's this theory. There's never, it's never been observed, but there's this possible thing called a white hole which is a point in space that opens up and everything that was sucked into a black hole is just suddenly ejected out of the white hole at another spot in the universe. And so if you could take us through those little ideas of what happens when things go into a black hole before we get into my favorite theory of what happens on the other side of a black hole. Yeah. So um, 
the the idea of a wormhole that is something that came from general relativity einstein's model which is the one we use and it's yeah, it's like the paper example you say because we do describe space-time like a sheet you can if black holes warp that sheet then it might be able to warp to two places uh, together and create a wormhole better known as an einstein rosen bridge which is what he uh which is what they theorized it as an einstein rosen bridge there is a I, I personally am a big, big skeptic on wormholes. Um, even if they were possible, I'd say that they could only possibly exist for like, a fraction of a second. They wouldn't be stable enough. The white's hole is the interpretation of what happens on the other side of a worm, of a, of a black hole wormhole. But the white's hole was a mathematical prediction of, um, uh, Carl Schwarzschild's model of an eternal black hole so white holes came about sealed was trying to work out what would happen uh, if there was just a black hole in an eternal universe and nothing else and he found that eventually the black hole would have to lead somewhere and that's where the white hole idea came from um the actual the actual nature of a white hole that's just a name for it if it did exist it probably wouldn't be white it would just look like a big explosion in space or a burp um, it might actually look like a black hole that is going backwards in time and spitting everything out. So th- th- those are just a couple of the white hole is a kind of colorful take on what the other side of a wormhole could look like. But our, our understanding of relativity, which we get from Einstein, it does theoretically allow parts of space time to be created by warp uh, pathways in space time to gr- be created, which ignore the distance between them through things like warping space-time and gravitational influences. So now I want you to talk about something that (laughs) I mentioned I will never stop thinking about. Let's circle back to the beginning of the episode when we talked about the Big Bang and how we understand what happened in the nanoseconds after, in the first 18 minutes after, but we don't know what happened before, Mm -hmm. where all of that energy came from uh thinking about what happens on the other side of a black hole what if the other side of a black hole it's creating another big bang and creating another universe sam explain this for us right so obviously when you when you think about the universe as as part of a of a wider dimension you've got two possibilities either we exist entirely alone and uh, all the nice chance properties of the universe which gave rise to humanity just popped out of nothing in isolation or the universe is not alone and then you come to this is it part of a a classic multiverse of universes stacked up against each other parallel universes or could the all the universes that exist be related by some means could they be part of a family tree and if you go down this rabbit hole you get to the notion of the universe and all its very chance properties that seem very good for supporting life and planets you begin to wonder if like everything else inside the universe it is dominate its its formation is dominated by natural selection now where the black hole comes into it is if the universe, our universe, is part of a family tree and the Big Bang is linked to some sort of universal reproduction, then black holes are a very good candidate for how that reproduction 
might take place because they occur often enough in space. Do you think if the we said that the universe seems very good for supporting life and black holes seem to be everywhere throughout all galaxies? So maybe so so that 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 works. There's if if black holes are in the create the seed of a new universe then that works because there'd be a lot of seeds obviously when a when a black hole takes in information and crushes it down it takes a little sample size of the universe it takes energy it takes radiation it takes matter it takes dark matter with it so the it's quite a fitting and and suitable example perhaps a black hole at its singularity crushes down all this information to create a new more simplified perhaps model of our universe. Oh my god. So, oh my god. Let's break some of this down. <laughs> wow. So, our universe and its success as a universe. You were saying that everything just kind of works. There is so many so much potential for life, the the st- stability of structures. We have a a functional universe. And when you're talking about universes possibly being created by other universes and there's being this kind of natural selection so there's all these black holes that could be seeding other universes but based on the matter it it could cause another big bang on the other end of the black hole there could be this other big bang but um the i guess you could say all the traits of the the little that of the universe that it sucks in um it's dna in a way uh may not produce the best universe where it could produce a universe where the physics are different where things don't line up right. And then that universe just kind of fails and collapses. And that universe doesn't go on to create other universes, but of universes that are good and stable, like ours in a way are like, could be like a mother universe and produce all these other universes. And through these black holes could be seeding others that have the characteristics of our universe and the, the physics of our universe. Uh, and not only that, but our universe could have been created by a black hole in another universe that was a good uh reproductive in a way universe and so is that am i understanding that right and there could be as you said a family tree of universes and in the same way that biological evolution works where there's natural selection for good adaptive traits i mean things that were but instead of like uh biology and like molecules lining up with our, our dna and all that shit it's like physics like physics being right and to all all these other things and so could you uh could you maybe break that down? am i understanding that right yeah i th- i think you i think you uh you you you're sort of getting it like yeah like if if a black hole takes through essentially a sample size of our universe which is is what it does it can create a more simplified version and as you said yeah there may be all sorts of universes which don't end up right, where the physics are slightly different. But you mentioned our universe might be apparent because it's successful. I would actually say the fact that our universe is successful is indicative that it may be a child universe of a of a of a good of a well adapted universe. I think Holy if the universe shit. is part of a family tree, then ours would have had to have they're very very much like the Earth. It would have taken a long time, a, a lot of evolution before the right, uh, the right conditions emerged. Now, obviously, the the a black hole, a black hole singularity, the point at the centre where we where we predict matter goes, it has a lot of similarities to the Big Bang. Uh, in that the Big Bang before it became finite was believed to be a point of infinite heat and, and infinite density. And that, that is a similarity it shares with a black hole. We also said that time and space go infinite inside a black hole. So 
if a black hole was to create a universe inside inside of it, that universe would be nice and tucked away in this eternal cradle. It would never it would it would be in this completely eternal black void and it, this universe could emerge and it would never it even if the black hole evaporated due to Hawking radiation, it would never know about it because time runs infinitely slowly inside the black hole. So it's just it's, it's crazy to think how a black hole could not only create a universe, but this entire universe could exist in the fraction in a fraction of a second inside this black hole. But there are there are similarities which make you think. Well, blimey, maybe 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 that that is maybe they do hold the key to understanding the wider context. Okay, Abby? I I don't even. I mean, I honestly am so blown away away right now. Because that is the whole question, right? How, where did the energy come from? Right? Where did the energy come from mm-hmm. before the Big Bang? Yep. And this is, it's just an infinite loop of it to zoom out and actually think of our universe being a child of a parent universe and then that potentially being a child of another parent universe. And, and how, just many like, how many children <laughs> that that parent universe had? If it was a good universe, it probably had a lot of kids. I mean,. Yeah, and to think that there's other universes that could be created that just the physics are failing too. It's like, like you think of physics being such a stable way to interpret everything that we know, right? And then to think that that just could completely be different. Uh, uh, well, I think physics physics breaks down at the highest uh, at the at the highest densities and pressures. Like the laws of physics at the very, very, the the most compressed and extreme states, for example, in the early universe or on the inside of a black hole, uh, we we don't know if they behave truly in the laws of physics as as we see them. I mean, the laws of physics work good for nice condensed energy, like the atoms and molecules that make up humans. But for the the very early universe, the nanoseconds after the Big Bang, the laws of physics could have been completely different. I'm not actually... I don't really know how, like, if there is a, a, a theory on determining how the laws of physics might be different, but maybe it is as simple as evolution on Earth in that there is always, it's never quite a perfect copy. There's always a defect. And sometimes those defects can lead to genetic advantages. And our, and our universe may just have those uh, uh, particularly good set of advantages if it is a child of other universes. And when you can just go to the, smallest like atom and then look at the biggest thing that you could possibly imagine it's like something that's even beyond what we know today as as the universe and it's this potential child of a parent universe it's like everything could almost be seen as like an evolutionary process it's like everything is so yeah it all like fits together yeah and that our universe could exist in what is the size of a tiny point in another un- in our parent universe because you know, it's like, like we always that- yeah we always think of evolution just here on earth like how did evolution start and and it's like this unique process but when you actually extrapolate that as the entirety cosmic evolution or cosmic sort of biological evolution. evolution oh my god the, the whole the whole universe is governed by natural selection galaxies and planets these these things are all, all only and these only the best of these things survive so like the best the best rocky planetary cores are the ones that go on to the Earth-like planets. Like the, the galaxies that have the right amount of gas around them are the ones that go on to be big. The whole the whole universe is governed by natural selection. So I, I think it's not unreasonable to wonder whether the the universe from an exterior context is also governed by natural selection, by 
evolution by the char- characteristics of it varying slightly with each iteration. If you thought it was hard to conceptualize our known observable universe, and then you thought you got your mind blown by trying to comprehend yeah, the unobservable, unobservable universe, universe. <laughs> now you're in the realm of how many universes exist in the center little pinpoints of the black holes in our universe, how many universes like ours exist in the black holes of our parent universe. And then you got to get into what was, was there a first universe? Has this just been, is that really the, the extent of the real, the bigger universe is that it is just this endless timeless tree of universes that have no beginning and no end. It's just, it's a scale that is truly, truly incomprehensible, Sam. I don't know if you have anything else to say on that. And if there is, is that the only theory of, of potential other universes, the multiple, multiple universe theories, is it just this idea that black holes could be creating other ones and we're a product of a parent universe or are there even other possibilities of parallel or, or multiple universes? Oh yeah. There's, there's so many different theories. I mean, the, the black, black hole cosmology is what we've just discussed. That's the take on the multiverse that it's a family tree. You've got the classical multiverse view that just there's an infinite plane and any sort of universe with any chemical configuration just exists and they all wander around and there's an infinite number. You've also got the cyclical universe model, which supposes that there's not loads of universes existing in parallel, but that our universe expands up and then something happens and it collapses back down into a new big bang and then it blows up again. So there's, there's all sorts of takes which aim to which aim to explain this this wider context um what i will say on the black hole thing is it is unlikely that stellar black holes caused by caused by collapsing stars would be able to uh create a new universe so the question is if black hole cosmology is the correct one then uh then then what kinds of black holes make new universes now it, it probably isn't the small ones which occur from stars is it the supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies or is it some interpretations of the universe's ultimate future uh, uh, envision black holes as as supermassive black holes as being the last thing in the universe and finding each other by gravity and merging together to create even larger black holes in the scales we see now. And this would especially happen if one day the universe stops uh, expanding and starts contracting in that far future the last thing to exist would be black holes that are merging together. And if the universe could contract into a small enough volume, you would eventually shove them all together to create one incomprehensibly massive unified black hole. And maybe, maybe that is the single lone seed to produce a new universe. It's, it's, it's still up for debate. Even if black hole cosmology exists, it's still up for debate as to what kind of black hole could possibly drive it. Damn. Well, I, I mean, what do you even say to that? I mean, let's, let's, uh, I know the family tree thing is theoretical, but it is what I believe. That's what I, I that's my new, it. that's it my new religion. So sense, <laughs> that is my new belief system. I'm going to make a religion out of it. Yeah. Why is there, let's start a cult. <laughs> let's start, <laughs> let's start a black hole. Um, no, I mean that, that honestly is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I refuse to not believe it, Sam. That is that is now, that's our household belief. We're going to raise sense. our kids in it. Um, <laughs> unbelievable, Sam. 
truly incomprehensible and spectacular. I, I can't think of enough adjectives to describe how blown away I am and how much my mind has bent um, around the possibility of this. It's truly beautiful. It really is beautiful to, to, to think about and entertain. Let's take a couple calls. You guys, please make your comments and questions short. We've already kept Sam on a little bit past the time that we told him, and it's late in the UK. That's right. Um, That's so let's okay. uh, let's hear from some people about about space and time and whatever else you want to throw at us. Diego, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? You are muted. You're still muted. Diego, call back and we'll, we'll pump we'll you up. Put you to the top. Hardy, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Hey, what's up, y'all? Uh, calling from Farmer, Colorado. Um, just want to say thanks to Sam for coming on. Uh, it's always nice to have this charming Brit talk about space. I mean, it's just like music to our ears, I think. Um, and then just glad to have uh, you and Mike just be excited about something that's not super dark and just fun and playful. <laughs> I think that's a great, great way to mix it up. Yeah. Um, so I didn't quite know where to go with my question, but you know, my two thoughts are, I mean, if you guys have any of your own, maybe experiences of something you've seen that you can't explain or try to, or, you know, just anything that maybe has just perplexed you in that way. Um, and then also maybe just curious about, um, maybe the difference in tone now from that Reagan era kind of, uh, you know, alien invasion narrative and how that seems to be something that's way more popular from the Pentagon's perspective these days and what they're telling us they've seen um, versus, you know, the things I've seen with some friends that are don't feel explainable in the way they casually talk about or promote. Um, and any just kind of like, where is the narrative versus where is maybe quote truth in the UFO, you know, truth is out there, X-Files kind of sense. Yes. Sorry. All right. So, what was, so, yeah, so Sam, what was the word? Yeah, Sam. So, do you have uh, uh, do you have an, a, any experiences uh, UFO ones? And also, I know that you said you believe in aliens, obviously, because of the probabilis- probability of it all. But uh, what do you think about this whole like have aliens visited Earth thing? So, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to disappoint you because I am. Um, <laughs> I mean, I believe I believe. I believe that there is alien life out there, but when it comes to this, I presume when you say the Pentagon, I presume you're talking about the unidentified aerial phenomena videos. I am a hardline skeptic of these. I do not think they are aliens. And I've investigated this as a video in a video. And I, I, I really wanted to believe, in fact, the U the whole UAPs mystery was the first thing I got into space. But if you go down this rabbit hole and you look far enough, the deeper you go, eventually you find the less there is to look at. Now, I know, like, I don't think the Pentagon and the US help themselves conspiracy-wise when they issue statements saying, we have no idea what this what this is. Uh, but I, I don't think it's aliens. Whether it's a weapon, whether it's a weapon from a foreign inventory, whether it's just a natural phenomenon that's going on, I, I, I don't think the Pentagon has handled it particularly well. But I, I, I just think there is always going to be a natural explanation for the for these videos. Uh, I know governments are concerned now by this whole UFO thing, but yeah, I, I do think there is a there is a big level of hysteria. And like you said, from the sort of Reagan area from UFO abductions, I do think, particularly in Western society, we have this 
uh, roman- not romanticism, this fascination about aliens visiting. So I do think that contributes to hyperactive imaginations at all levels, including government levels. I think there are people at the highest level, at the government level, who see videos like this and get excited. Yeah, Sorry, Sam, uh, I, uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic along with you. I, um, I think that the Hardy, thanks for your call. And I think, I think what's behind the shift from the Reagan era is I think the reason that the that the DoD is now releasing these videos and saying we don't know, and people like Marco Rubio are saying, oh, we don't know. It, I, I think it's conspicuously timed for the creation of the Space Force and this whole new uh, industry of the military to pour a bunch of funds into. And so, to me, it seems like it's all just to gin up more of our tax dollars going into the the Pentagon budget for this stuff. But anyways, well, I want, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'm really curious about this too. And I definitely don't take any of this stuff at face value. And I definitely think that whenever the Pentagon and the U S government are entertaining something that they've discredited for decades, mm-hmm. you have to think of almost like what, what psyop is being played on us, especially when you have players like Marco Rubio out there, <laughs> urging concern about UAPs. But then on the other hand, you have weird mass sightings that are just totally perplexing and bizarre. But yeah, as far as these videos that are eking out and, you know, endorsed by the Pentagon, I'm, I'm highly suspicious of. Diego, so you're we, back you on know, the line. Just, yeah, go ahead, have, Sam. Yeah, go ahead. I just, the, 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 UA, the UAPs thing, the whole secret project mm-hmm. into looking into that project, not Project Boober, the AATIP, the budget of that that program was about $30 million. Now, if you look at the U.S.'s uh, military expenditure, it's in, what, the hundreds of billions of dollars. So I actually do think that this, this they, they say, oh, these UAPs, they've come from the top level, they've come from the highest level, the highest classification. I wouldn't actually say so. The AATIP was actually quite, it seemed, it appeared to be quite a minor operation with low funding that was discontinued after a while. I just think there's so many people who have so much passion about it uh, that they're sure that this is aliens, that there's, there's, there's more smoke than there is fire, if you know what I mean. I hear you, Sam. Uh, Diego, you're back on the line. Where are you calling from? Hey there. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome. Um, hey, I am calling from Olympia, Washington. Um, and yeah, just obligatory. Love you guys. First time, long time. Um, this has been fascinating and uh, I wanted to tell you sort of like a universe dosed experience I had um, where I went to the museum of like space and flight in Seattle and there was actually a road a Diego we lost you night. um as Diego, Diego, Diego. We like, lost you in the trees there in Olympia. Um, you, wait, uh, re- you said you went to a museum. A row of blank. Destiny. Uh, Diego. Testing. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Kind of. Uh, sorry, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm working, and so I've been, like, on the road listening the whole time and just sort of, like, waiting, and then I got into a dead spot as soon as... Oh man! But um, okay, so you were in a museum and you saw a row of something. Oh no, it was a it was a rave at the space museum. It was really awesome. <laughs> uh, Even better. And, yeah, uh, and there was this one guy, and you know the space museum has a lot of volunteers, and he was talking about 
um, his favorite theory of the universe, which was how entropy and um, just entropy is one of the, the biggest drivers for how things move in the universe. And, you know, it's planets breaking down, complex things going to less complex things. And he was talking about how one of the top drivers of entropy is life. So, you know, life consumes things, breaks them down, releases them as heat as it moves around. Complex life, it turns out, is really, really good at being uh, entropy creating. Like we are digging up carbon and mm -hmm. setting it on fire. Um, and in this guy's mind, entropy was, or life was an inevitable universal reality across planets because, you know, it's sort of like the ultimate purest form of, um, of this progression of entropy for the universe. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I'm curious what an actual expert would think of that concept. Sam, what do you think about I, I I love that idea. I love that idea that that, that life is is the most efficient way to bring about entropy. I mean that is that's a very deep thing which I'll I'll have to I'll have to think about for a couple of hours before I fully uh like before I fully appreciate it. But um I, I don't know. I like I think I, I think entropy is it is spooky because it, it leads us to the heat death. I don't know whether it is fully linked to the to the nature of life and everything i just think like entropy comes about because energy exchanges in our universe aren't perfect the difference between humans burning carbon and and industrializing versus a star forming out of gas and the waste energy that comes from those processes is going to be very negligible on a on a local scale however i do think that that the idea that life being the most entropy inducing I do think that that idea is 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 an interesting one, but personally, I, I I'm I'm not sure what what if if entropy is the driving force behind life. I like the concept of it. How again, like the mimicry of um, just evolutionary processes, and we're looking at you know zooming out and looking at kind of the natural selection and how certain things formulate and you can compare and contrast to human life here um i wanted to wrap this up you guys i'm so sorry that we can't take more calls we've kept on sam very long already but i wanted to ask one last question from the chat from robo about the boots void who says there's a huge cosmic void in space um any explanation or comment on that yep uh boots void was actually one of my earliest videos and i got swept up in the hype behind it. it it is it is a perfectly normal void in space thing about voids is that they are spherical and they actually have this weird coalescing soap bubble effect they are the result of galaxies being emptied out by gravitational influences and when you've got a few of these areas where galaxies are being pulled out by galaxy clusters they sort of soap bubble together and create these enormous voids the Boots Void is one such void, and it is exceptionally large, about 330 million light years across. And it contains about 50 galaxies where 10,000 would be expected. That is the equivalent of driving from coast to coast of the United States and finding maybe one or two towns along the way. However, it is as creepy and as empty as it is. 
it is just the perfectly normal part of the cosmic web. But the same way, if you look inside a sponge, there are going to be some like thick branches and there's going to be some gaps in between those branches that are bigger than others. Boots Void's been swept up in a lot of internet hype, though, because it's been confused with a picture of a nebula named Bernard 68, which is often what does the round on the internet. There's a picture of Boaties uh, Void, which it claims it to be this all dark abyss, but it's not. It's actually it's actually a nebula. So Boots Void got caught up in a in a rumor, which which hmm. elevated it to some levels that made people think it was uh, like physics defying but it's not it's, it's just a perfectly normal void so it's not completely empty there's still things in it it's just not as uh compacted as normal yeah other. when when galaxies are emptied out uh, when when galaxies are emptied out in like groups of tens of thousands there'll always be some residue mm-hmm. and if the, if we if we lived in one of those galaxies at the center of uh void we wouldn't have actually known that there were other galaxies in space until about the 1960s when we finally got the capacity to survey in other electromagnetic frequencies before that we would have had no idea that there were other galaxies out there because they'd have been too far away and dim if we lived in the center well Thank the black hole gods that <laughs> we live in the time that we do now, Sam E. Anderson, so we can actually observe these things. We can explore these things. It's incredible. I mean, I'm so lucky. I feel so grateful, even though the planet is on fire, that I live at this point in time where I can understand how vast this all is. Um, Sammy Anderson, any final thoughts before we wrap and let you go? No, I, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking about this. If, <laughs> uh, I'll do some more black hole videos in the future. Yes. So if any of you want to come up, head over to my channel, I'll, uh, I'll bear that in mind for next time. Please do Sam. And please everyone out there, stay curious and stay open because things tend to get crazier than you can even imagine. Check out Sammy Anderson's YouTube channel called CSEA. He also has a Discord, discord.com slash invite slash C, and a SoundCloud, C underscore media. Please check it out. Support Sam's work. Subscribe to his channels and continue to get dosed on space. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. live listeners out there next episode we're going deeper into this with an astrophysicist that one is September 22nd make sure to set your reminder for that with this music while you think about the family tree of the universe.
Abby, who were you listening to, by the way? Let's see. I sent you it. It's on Bandcamp. I forget who it is. Let me check it out. the edge of perception so check out alfaxone and proto u album back to beyond (laughs) 